1: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Radiotherapy, Triple R's Sunday morning smorgasbord of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr. Anabolix and I'll be your host today, as Torman is away coaching his son's footy team final. Apparently, today's match is the decider, so let's start by saying, go eels, <laughs> and they're going to need to be eels in this weather. Now, Dr. McZiff is also swanning about visiting family in far-off lands, but I'm sure whatever the time zone is, he'll be streaming us live. I mean, who wouldn't? Love your work, Sigmund. Come home safe. Yeah. <laughs> But, just in case you're worried that your radiotherapy program has become another victim of inadequate medical resourcing, let me reassure you that we have talent in this room to spare. Sitting next to me, resplendent in his long white coat, stethoscope and red clown nose, is Dr. S.K., resident geriatric psychiatrist, academic and film buff, to bring us up to date with his passion, the intersection of medicine and the arts. And to help him, we are graced with the return presence of a long friend of the show, and actual clever person, Dr. Fincher, Hockgood, who is out there in the field researching mental health, film culture, human rights, and the arts? Uh, Fincina, is it Fincina or Tinchina? I've got that wrong, haven't I? It's Fincina, but Fincena. everyone who speaks Italian says Fincina, so uh, that's there why. There you go, and I've got no excuse because I don't do that. So, Fincina, thank you. Fincina wowed us last visit with her passion and fascination about psychiatry on film, and it's, pos- and it's possible that once she and SK get chatting, I may not get another word in. That won't bother anyone. I'll be no, looking at, uh, if we've got time, I'll be looking at things about drug and alcohol. Research and we've got things at the Mental Health Commission on our panel. Our wonderful Kent is keeping us live to air and mix and mic'd up because none of us know how to. So settle back, toast up, and hunker down while we cruise through to 11 with all this and much, much more. And remember, this won't hurt a bit.
2: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
1: SK. McZiff and Torman have put their family commitments ahead of radiotherapy today. Have they got their priorities wrong or have they got their priorities very wrong?
2: Well, I think what this program needs is less dead air and fewer outrageous accents <laughs> so i think we'll do okay are anabolics.
1: how are you today you well?
2: i'm pretty good i dropped into mcdonald's on my way to uh, radiotherapy for a serve of youth mental health <laughs> <laughs> you read the age this morning they're talking about the mcdonald's of well, youth mental health services This
1: takes us right into catch up can you tell us what what you read this morning because I, I just caught the, the, the headline i didn't see the whole thing well
2: basically it was an article it was criticizing the uh, generic headspace approach to the delivery of youth mental health services uh, basically adopt a one-size-fits-all franchise-type model where franchisees are forced to run the party line and serve up the party dishes of hash browns and youth mental health counselling without any particular needs uh, reference to the needs of the local communities which they serve. So this is part of a much broader bunfight about mental health funding, which uh, you, know, you alluded to in the intro with the Mental Health Commission report. Uh, Headspace has been a very successful national organisation for several years now, largely driven by former Australian of the Year and eminent psychiatrist Patrick McGorry, who, you know, to his credit, has done wonders for getting his patch funded. And uh, when it all comes down to the, the wire, that's his job. His job is to advocate for his patch, and he's done it very well. But arguably, it's been at the expense of other deserving sectors in mental health. Uh, I'll make a plug for my own specialty here you know as a geriatric psychiatrist I'm continually frustrated by the amount of focus in the community that's placed upon uh, youth suicide you know the tragedy of youth suicide is what we hear about in the media and there's no denying it is a tragedy but let's put it in some perspective Uh, when you look at the suicide statistics across the age span in Australia people over the age of 65 kill themselves at three times the rate of the 18 to 25 year olds but we don't hear anything about the tragedy of elder suicide so it's at the expense of less sexy areas of mental health that projects such as Headspace and early intervention in youth mental health get funding and it sort of biases the the government's approach to mental health policy because uh, Headspace has almost become sacrosanct in the mental health sphere you can't criticise it uh, lest you become... uh, tarred with accusations of criticizing the pope i think was the term that they used in the article this morning so it's another thought-provoking uh thorn in the side of mental health policy makers uh this criticism that headspace doesn't necessarily have the evidence behind it to justify the government's uh approach to funding it and uh in, in an environment where we're clearly short of money it's another uh consideration in the mix of, of how our scarce mental health dollars should actually be directed which brings us I suppose back to the mental health commission report that hit the news recently
1: well yes that that was interesting this this is uh, for people who haven't had a chance to look at this this is the mental health commission's uh, final report I think as well I, I suppose it's when I say final it's their finished report they made they're, I think they're still working um, but uh, they've put out a, a paper it was apparently delivered to the government last November but it's only been released on Friday afternoon as I understand um, which, which is a little bit worrying. I always worry when papers get released, you know, Friday night before ANZAC weekend. You, you have to wonder whether it's going to be taken very seriously by the government. It's got buried a bit. so. But uh, it's, people want to have a look at it. It's on their website, um, www.mentalhealthcommission.gov.au. And they, in this... Uh, I've just had a look... I've only had a chance to look at the summary. I think you guys have had a look at uh, a bit more. But um, the nine they give nine strategic directions where they think money should be moved to and, and how they think it should be... Um, Accountability should be set, and clear roles should be set. And there's 25 separate recommendations. And some of them, some of them are a little bit controversial. Some of them are a bit motherhoody, as I read them. Some of them are a little bit controversial. And uh, I think there's a big um, push uh, towards back from acute, the acute end, the serious end, perhaps back towards the more preventative and primary care end of things. Now, can I, looking at that aspect, can I take you up on what you said about Headspace or Dr. Mendoza said about um, Headspace this morning? Um, uh, i 'd like to argue with you about this so i 'll be devil 's advocate and al- also I have uh, uh, worked at headspace before, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed that experience the, the, where I was working there suppose I was working was working I think very well, and I enjoyed it but uh, I understand there've been problems with the, the way it 's set up now if this is they 're talking about it in this uh, paper, the mental health commission is talking about getting uh, moving money back to central coordinating bodies, particularly in primary care now isn 't Wouldn't a health space um, uh, clinic be a very good example of a, a primary care service that's delivering a one stop, you know? suits all, sort of delivers all So, Wouldn't that be kind of an example of what the Mental Health Commission is actually suggesting we move to?
2: Having, having worked in a Headspace into yourself, Anabolics, you might be better place to uh, to answer that than I. Uh, I thought Headspace were a specialist-based service and the, uh, the Commission's report's talking about moving mental health resources into primary care specifically, which is the domain of general practitioners, and in specifics, uh, upskilling GPs in their detection and management of mental illness and at whatever stage of development uh, and talking about modifying the Medicare benefits schedule to encourage GPs to do more of that. It's one of the great perversities about general practice is you get much more money as a GP if you see 10 patients in an hour for six minutes each rather than by seeing one patient for 60 minutes. Mm. So you've got to incentivise the primary care or general practice workforce to take more of an interest and be more proactive in managing mental health issues, which you just can't do in six-minute medicine. So I'm all for uh, pushing more resources into primary care to deal with this, but by pushing more resources in, I think it means upskilling the general practice population and GPs see the vast majority of people with mental illnesses across the spectrum you know maybe about 10 percent of people with a mental illness will actually end up seeing a psychiatrist so 90 percent of the work is being done in general practice already Mm -hmm. and if you're serious about for example having an impact on the suicide rate a lot of the suicides in our community will come from the 90 percent of people who never see a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. so you could argue that throwing piles of money into specialist services like psychiatry isn't actually going to impact on the the suicide rate much because much of the unwanted outcome, i.e. a suicide happens in people who are only attending primary practice services
1: or who aren't attending anybody at all, that's a very large chunk, attend nobody at all who uh, kill themselves Of course, and of course suicide is essentially, even though it's a, a huge figure in the population sense in our in our populations we see, it's relatively rare, you know, the populations we actually see, so it's hard to get really um, high quality evidence base on what works and what doesn't work for, um, for suicide, so um, just to let people know what Headspace is, perhaps I should um, look at, talk about that. Uh, the Headspace uh, clinics are uh, dotted around the states. They're federally, the, at the core uh, service uh, areas are, and the management of these um, centres are federally funded and uh, the, the uh, they have work, uh, clinical workers, on-site workers, uh, disability staff, um, drug and alcohol workers and they do have GPs. A lot of them do have GPs working there and some have psychologists, some have have psychiatrists and so it's meant to be kind of a one-stop so although it takes a specialist look at one sector of the health um table the the mental health sector it does have a primary kind of you know you can walk in here you don't just don't need a referral um there are gps we'll see it's a bit of a mixed it's a bit of a mixed kind of um uh, model and it's uh, you know when it's working well it can work very well one of the difficulties been is that it's been hard to uh, i understand uh, not being involved in the management of them it's been hard sometimes to coordinate with the different uh, uh, NGOs and the, different, and, the, and the private psychiatrists and private psychologists uh, working there to kind of get them to stay and get them to work on. And that's been quite uh, a difficult job, I understand. Do you know any more about that?
2: In terms of staff retention and so mm. forth at Headspace, I mm. don't. But, uh, you know, to me, the, the, the logic behind the model is flawed because, again, you're targeting people for intervention who have declared themselves as being at very high risk and that's fine, but as you've alluded to yourself anabolics the the rates of successful suicide even in a very high risk population mm. are still pretty low mm. so if you're only targeting in your headspace intervention the one to two percent of the population who are at extremely high risk you're doing nothing about the lower rate of suicide mm. but one which is dwarfed by the other 98 percent of the population within most uh, within which most of these suicides occur and if i can take the analogy back to geriatric psychiatry for a minute i mentioned that the uh, Rate of old age suicide is three times that of youth suicide. But if you go back over the last 100 years, 100 years ago, the rate in old people was much much higher, and it's actually been steadily decreasing throughout the past 100 years. And when you graph this decline in older persons' suicide rates against the great advances in inverted commas that have occurred in psychiatry over the past 100 years, there's no correlation. Like nothing that psychiatry has done has actually meaningfully impacted upon, a, across the national suicide rate at all in the last 100 years. If you look uh, in the 1930s and 40s when electroconvulsive therapy was instituted, doesn't make an impact on the slope of the graph at all. The first antidepressants came out in the 1950s. They haven't altered the slope of the line. Mm-hmm. The onset of Prozac and the newer antidepressants in the 1980s hasn't done a thing mm-hmm. to impact on the suicide rate and that's because the people who are receiving these interventions are at the very high end of the risk spectrum, so a tiny proportion of the population are getting all of the psychiatric services, but most of the adverse events are occurring in the the low-risk group. So the, the reason the suicide rate has been decreasing in old people for the past 100 years it's got nothing to do with psychiatry what it has got a lot to do with is improvements in broad based community supports that can have an impact on the outcomes Uh, of life for the population and i'm talking about in relation to aged care things like uh, rural district nursing service the availability of medicare funded health services the availability of residential aged care facilities the aged pension it's all of these broad-based community social changes that have impacted on the suicide rate. And I can see hints of that in the Commission's report about wanting to move funding away from acute services on the one hand and put it into community broad-based interventions. You know, long-term, that's undoubtedly the way to go if you are targeting as your end point a reduction in suicide rates but uh, with the dollars being scarce as they are and the acute mental health sector being in a perpetual state of crisis as i'm sure you all know i think taking a billion dollars out of the acute hospital service and moving that money into community-based supports is robbing peter to pay paul you can't actually deprive the people at the pointy end of service provision of services that are vital in order to fund preventative programs, they need to find additional money and to prioritise that rather than simply a redistribution of existing cash. That was a long diatribe, uh, Anabolics, but does, does it acquaint you with where I'm coming it's, from? It's
1: beautiful. thought oh, that was beautiful. Oh, that was beautiful. I'm very, I'm, now, I'm going to throw to Fincena about this because you, you're listening here and I can see you're very engaged with this topic. <laughs> now, w- with all these things you're hearing, you, you've had a chance to look at this report too. Um, you're, you're standing on a, a periphery, a kind of a in one little Venn diagram part of the whole sector in a very different place mm-hmm. to us. What did, what was your take on the on the report when you had a look at it? Well, I always stress to people that I might be called Dr. Fincina Hopgood, but I am certainly not a mental health professional
0: like my esteemed colleagues here. Um, I'm very aware of how short in funding the mental health sector is. And so while I admire the philosophy of targeting early intervention, um, I do register everyone's concern about stripping funds away from acute care. And I can see that as being the real controversial point of the report's recommendation. But the philosophical underpinning, I think, does have merit. It's the idea that uh, we need to reduce the amount of people reaching that acute state. And one way to do that is to improve not only early intervention but simply um, community attitudes towards mental illness, and that's really where I come in. Yes. You know, as someone who looks at how mental health is portrayed in film and television and media, generally, um, I have a particular interest in the way in which our popular culture contributes to stigma and stereotypes and people being reluctant to seek that help that you identified. You know, as you said, most people who do
1: end up dying by suicide haven't actually sought the help that they need in the first place. Well, just, I'm going to interrupt you. One of, the, one of the bits in the summary that they've said, to you know, uh, uh, back up your point, is they recommend... Use evidence, evaluation and incentives to reduce stigma, build capacity and respond to the diversity of needs of different population groups. So they're particularly mentioning stigma, as you've just Mm. seen. How do you see that as improving the, the care for people with mental
0: health? Well, I think as long as there is still a stigma attached to having a mental illness, people will be reluctant to seek help. That's pure and simple. Um, we know that people's mental health benefits from community support, from family support, and it includes support within your workspace. Um, and if you are reluctant to go to your boss and say, look, I need some time away to look after my mental health versus I need some time away to go have some day surgery, mm-hmm. um, that's a great example of where stigma really interferes with getting the health care that you need. So, you know, I mean, popular culture, you know, on the one hand, hand, it is, people say, surely it's just a form of entertainment, but we all know that entertainment can have pervasive effects upon people's social attitudes, and there is research and evidence behind that as well. Mm. I'm not someone who advocates for the fact that all portrayals of mental health have to be absolutely you know, um, uh, Pollyanna? Positive. Pollyanna, that's yep. the word I'm looking for. Um, I think we have to recognise that we actually do want to see portrayals of mental illness that are also authentic and that authenticity may also involve having portrayals that show the darker side of experiencing mental illness. But despite that, I do think we need to recognise the influence that these portrayals have and recognise that they're part of the stigma that we still have in society. So I think organisations like say, in Australia are really key to actually helping people understand that popular culture
1: contributes to stigma and we have to look at that. Now SAIN Australia is a, um, a national organisation that, that particularly focuses on mm. the social connections with people, um, involvement, inclusion and stigma breakdown, don't they? They have a stigma watch?
0: Yes, stigma watch has been around for quite a few years um, and what's really exciting I think to see in the evolution of stigma watch with SAIN Australia isn't simply them paying attention to the negative representations of mental illness but increasingly rewarding uh, particularly journalists and reporters who have positive or constructive portrayals of mental illness. So what they call the good news stories is right. becoming increasingly um, prevalent, And I should also point out that SANE Australia have partnered with people like the Australian Writers Guild, a group of scriptwriters, and the National Mindframe Media Initiative to actually help develop guidelines for people working in scriptwriting to have portrayals that are more authentic, sensitive and informed by the lived experience. Mm-hmm. So I think the key, at least in my sector, to moving forward and combating stigma is to actually have collaboration between people producing these portrayals, between people with lived experience, and organisations like SANE that can
1: bring people together. Uh, does that relate to the um, the geriatric um, psychiatric population? Because we don't see that portrayed very much in in uh, popular culture, do we? We sometimes see mental illness in younger people or uh, depression, suicide, and you know uh, disenfranchisement for young people. But we don't see a lot of mental illness in older people on our TV or movie screens, do we? Really?
2: When we do, it's often in the form of uh, somebody undergoing a dementing illness. Mm. And uh, you know whether you characterise dementia as a psychiatric problem or a neurological problem. or... Or some melding of the two. It's almost a moot point. But, yeah, geriatric psychiatry is often conflated with the presence of dementia, and that's all there is to it. But uh, when you think about older patients with psychiatric illness, they're almost subject to a dual disability and a dual stigma because not only do, do they bear the stigma of having a psychiatric problem, but they have the stigma of being old. And when you look at how media portrays ageing in our society, it's rarely presented as a positive thing. In films, uh, older characters are underrepresented, and if they are represented, you see them as a disease of the weak, a relative of a main character who's demented, you see them as the hapless victim of crime, or as figures of fun, uh, particularly in, in television primetime drama so they're invisible Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't have a voice they're invisible to advertisers I think I've made the point before that uh, asking the audience to reflect on when they last saw an advertisement featuring an old person that was looking at anything other than superannuation Bernie Fraser Mm -hmm. uh, funeral homes or incontinence products you know (laughs) yes so trying to advocate for older persons mental health Mm -hmm. in an environment where not only is mental health stigmatised but ageing itself is stigmatised is a big problem and uh, in, in many ways age psychiatry needs a, a Patrick McGorry to sort of uh, raise these issues to the public consciousness and make the general public and by extension government see older persons mental health as an issue that's worth tackling in its own right.
1: Of course one ad- you might call this an advantage that that group does have is that they do attend GPs at a higher rate of, than anyone else that that older age group do have physical health problems that take them to GPs so they should in some on some level perhaps have an extra you know top possible benefit of being in front of people who might screen for mental illness as well as physical illness don't they when they when they when they go to see their gps haven't they got that extra access that a 20 year old boy you know never sort of goes to a gp unless he falls off his bike or something but
2: you would would think so but Mm. in practice it it doesn't work out if you consider the current generation of older people and you know they're the only cohort that we have available for study really the old people who are currently alive they were raised in a an era where mental illness carried even a bigger stigma than what it does today. So they're a stoic generation for whom admission of not coping at a psychological level is seen as an unacceptable admission of weakness by many of them, particularly by old blokes. Mm. You know, And these are a generation who lived through masses of economic and social deprivation. They don't complain about things. Older people themselves take on board the tacit messages that society sends them as well. Uh, Old people know that they're invisible. They know that their opinion aren't valued, they know that they're not targeted by advertisers many of them grow up and enter old age assuming therefore that depression and anxiety and feelings of despair and loneliness are an inevitable concomitant of growing older so they don't complain to their general practitioner about it they themselves see it as normal it's also compounded by the the difficulty that depression in old age presents quite differently to how it does in in young people if you look at the DSM psychiatry bible of uh, how to make a diagnosis of depression those criteria for major depressive disorder are only validated in middle-aged women so they Mm -hmm. say nothing about how young people for example might get depressed and you'd know that well yourself Mm -hmm. they say nothing about how a primary school child might experience depression and equally dsm criteria say nothing in particular about uh, how an old person might get depressed so when an older person goes to their general practitioner and you make the point correctly that they have the opportunity they're seeing their gps frequently for other things they're more likely uh, when they're experiencing depression in old age to not actually use the word depressed to describe how they're feeling they're more, more likely to use the words i'm anxious or i'm just worried doctor so they get prescribed an anxiolytic they're also more likely when when you experience depression in old age to uh Experience physical symptoms as a manifestation of your distress rather than necessarily overting it as psychological distress. So when you have an older person who may well have multiple medical pathologies that takes them back to their GP month after month, if that same old person presents with another physical symptom in the setting of known multiple pathologies, it's very easy for the GPs to go down the track of physical medicine and not even recognise that this new physical symptom is an expression of psychological distress. And we were all taught in medical school by DSM. You know, you recognise depression by looking for a series of symptoms that have to be present for a minimum period of time and a certain severity. And if GPs are being taught incorrectly how depression manifests in old age, they're not in a position to recognise it, even if... Uh, the time incentives were there to allow them to do that. So there's an education problem as well. I think I've strayed miles off yeah, the point of your original question. So,
1: so if you were if you were a member of the Mental Health Commission, would you, what particular th- stream would you add here? What recommendation would you add? I mean, are you, it sounds like almost that the older generation, you know, the over seventies, perhaps at at the moment, almost that, that their cycle, their own sort of self analytic psychological literacy is is probably behind that of where the you know the, the post sixties generation, we you know we all analyze ourselves to death. But that group that was the, the older, more hardy, more stoic group who are now in their late seventies and eighties, did you know do they not have the words maybe do they not have the the justification is that what you're saying that they kind of tend not to present with what's really going on but but put a physical kind of label to it or
2: they probably don't have the mental health literacy and i'm talking the pre-baby boomer generations mm-hmm. you know as the baby boomers age they are more mental health literate and more economically empowered to advocate for themselves they're better educated but the pre-baby boomers by and large were an economically deprived cohort. Who were, as a group, poorly educated, who aren't used for to advocating for their own needs.
1: So, how would you address that? How do you how do you get around that? Just by GP education, do you think, or primary well, health
2: to, to take it back to your original question, I'd, I'd include an aged-specific stream in reports such as this. I mean, of these ten or eleven recommendations, there's no reference at all, as things stand, to older persons' mental health, mm-hmm. which really flies in the face of what we know about the magnitude of the problem. And uh, I, I saw a terrific graph from the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, from a couple of years ago. Which which showed the number or the frequency with which older persons access psychiatry or psychology-based MBS items. Mm. And, you know, the rates of consultation of a psychiatrist or a psychologist if you're over 65, they account for 3% of Mm. the total consultations for psychological items under the mbs so a tiny proportion uh, utilized for a, a, a group of the population that accounts for about 20 percent of us if you then put against that same graph the rates of psychotropic drug prescription at different ages you know old people are prescribed psychoactive medications at a rate that's seven or eight times greater than any other group in the in the population so who's doing all of this psychiatric prescribing for people who aren't identifying themselves as having a psychiatric problem uh, it, it's got to be an awareness thing and it gets back to what Fincina was saying about cultural change we have to change the way in which we as a society view aging and therefore the needs and welfare of our older uh, Relations, co community members, in order for the government to see this as a problem that's worth addressing. And for reports such as this to come out with no reference to mental health. In old age, where that is where the vast majority of the problem lies, just buys into this myth that uh, old people are invisible, that their needs aren't worth considering, and that all of the problem lies at the the end of uh, of youth mental health.
1: I, I, to be fair, I don't uh, know that it has focused on any particular age group, except to mention perhaps early development, children, families a little bit. I don't, I, maybe the the, um, the the large report, which is I I haven't read, maybe that tackles things more specifically. I don't know. But Okay. Well, we better. That's just a fascinating discussion. Um, what I want to ask you about. I just want to ask. You've got a fabulous film festival coming up in You want to tell us about, which might touch on some of these issues yeah. and bring them into the public awareness much better than people like us chatting away can
0: do. And no, absolutely. That's why love is the power of film to really open people's minds to experiences and journeys that they wouldn't otherwise think about. So, coming up in May at. Acme is the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. It's now in its eighth year uh, and it's two weeks of fantastic film programming and visual arts events that all deal with uh, human rights and social justice issues. And I thought particularly relevant to this program would be a couple of films that deal with medical issues. Uh, There's one called Of Men and War, which is a documentary about uh, PTSD and veterans. And uh, I should stress that these films might sound a bit sobering and depressing but one of the things to remember about the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival is that it's very much geared around having a celebration of social justice and human rights awareness. So I quite often find that the festival is a very positive, optimistic space to go to and you certainly don't walk out of these films feeling um, depressed. You actually feel quite inspired that people are actually expressing these issues through the medium of film. So one is called Of Men and War which I would recommend. Um, there's another one on reproductive rights called A Quiet Inquisition that deals with the fact that Nicaragua is one of five countries where it's illegal to terminate a pregnancy even if the mother's health is at risk and it actually follows the life of a leading obstacle gynaecologist who has to reconcile the law with her own sense of what is right and wrong. Mm. That's a quiet inquisition. And The Humanitarians which looks at issues of sexuality and disability both physical and mental. Um, If you've never been to Haraf before and you're a bit uh, overwhelmed by trying to choose a film, I would recommend that you actually check out their shorts programs. They have two international short film compilations and an Australian short film compilation that really show you that you can use a whole range of different moods, atmospheres and techniques to deal with social Justice issues. They don't just have to be, you know, straight down the line documentaries. Some are feature narrative films, and others uh, focus on children. And uh, one of the things that's great about the festival too is there's a lot of people, a lot of guest speakers that help us process the issues that mm. we're seeing on the screen and talk about them afterwards. They have
1: directors and things come in talk yeah. about. Yeah. So right? they
0: either have directors uh, come in uh, to the cinema or indeed come in via Skype, which is oh. always fun uh, if they're based overseas. Um, they have fantastic um, social events as well around the festival, and uh, some of the panelists discussions I think are really where the audience come together as a community to kind of process what we've been watching on the screen and how as you know concerned members of the community we can go out and make a difference. And what's the name of the name of the uh, festival again? It's called Human Rights Arts and Film Festival or mm. HARAF for short. <laughs> so if you just go to H R A F org au, org the program is available now and I should stress that it is getting bigger and better every year, so a lot of sessions do sell out, um, and it's next month starting on the 7th of May, running for two weeks
1: Whereabouts so is it held?
0: It's mostly at Acne, but they do have a visual arts component which is really exciting, so there'll be visual arts installations in Federation Square mm. and also nearby um, arts centres as well, so it's basically the hub of it is Federation Square, mm. and I'm really excited about it personally because a lot of the students I teach at Melbourne Uni oh. go on to work with the film festival. So it's very exciting to see my students kind of graduate and uh, find a career path working in human rights film festivals like this
1: one. Fabulous. Well, that's, that, I think that's sort of the sort of festival that would interest a lot of radiotherapy mm. listeners actually because that's spot on the money for some of these topics that we've been talking about. Absolutely. Um, perhaps i just wrap up this that segment by just uh, making sure that our listeners know that when we, when we talk about some of these funding issues and the, the pros and cons um, I, I really want to make people very clear that sometimes these are behind the Scenes, back office issues of funding and things. It, it, if people have had good experiences with through their GPs, through Headspace, through any other. You know, there there is still great help out there, and don't let the um you know the the arguments behind the scenes of who's getting what dollars put you off approaching these services because they are on the front line. You you'll find almost invariably fabulous people with welcoming arms and um, a lots to offer. So I just want to you know m- make sure that people don't get the wrong impression that we we're, we're uh, contributing to any resistance on the part of uh, people who need help to get help because the money is all behind the scenes don't worry about that just go and get help if you needed you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne Australia
2: it is the season for medically themed film festivals. In addition to Haraf, uh shortly in Melbourne there'll be a, a program called MedFest, which is occurring at Monash Medical Centre Clayton on Tuesday the 5th of May. What is MedFest? Uh, MedFest was an idea that had its origins back in 2011 with a group of medical students in the UK, uh, organised a series of films to promote discussion about mental health, uh, to promote uh, psychiatry as a profession for medical students in the UK and more broader and to raise issues uh, that are relevant to the community that can be illustrated through mental health-themed films. So Medfest originally began in 2011, and it's expanded now to encompass about 20 cities worldwide. And it's uh, Melbourne's turn this year. Uh, like Haraf, they have a, a theme for each year, and the theme of Medfest in 2015 is global medicine and civilizations. And over the course of Tuesday evening, I'll be screening several short films, clips, and animations that deal with issues in global health cross-cultural psychiatry so how psychiatry and psychiatric disorders present differently in different cultures and also in in relation to refugee mental health which of course is extremely topical at the moment with the recent news of a five-year-old girl in immigration detention suffering post-traumatic stress disorder from her experiences on Nauru so this will be uh, a great forum for discussion after the film's clips and animations have been shown there will be a, a discussion by a panel of experts before the floor is is opened up to audience questions and comments. Uh, it's intended that MedFest be a relaxed yet insightful evening and, and most importantly for prospective attendees, there will be free food. <laughs> so this event is occurring at Monash Medical Centre in Clayton in Lecture Theatre 1, 6.30pm uh, for food, 7pm official start, a series of unnamed short films, animations and other media, uh, which will provide a springboard for discussion about mental health across cultures. Now, Fincina, this is an area of interest of yours as well, Mm. medically themed films. You hadn't been aware of MedFest before this. No, this is so
0: super exciting for me. I'm just dipping my toe into researching what I've been calling mental health film culture. The idea that you can actually develop a sense of uh, awareness through film about mental health issues, but specifically through initiatives just like MedFest. Um, That is the idea that you screen a film, whether it be a short film, a feature film, a documentary, and you buttress that with discussion afterwards, and that discussion can involve mental health professionals, people with lived experience, the filmmakers themselves, but also importantly, the audience, so that it's really a participatory form of film viewing. So it's not just a, a passive watching a film and leaving the cinema and thinking about it, but actually talking about the issues that are raised through what you see on film. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, you've done this before. A couple of years ago, you, you organised a screening with another festival of Romulus, My Father, and you got the uh, director and author of the book along to talk about his own experiences in relation to making that film. Is that the sort of informed discussion that you're talking about when you have a screening?
0: That's exactly what I'm looking at. In fact, it's kind of a nice outgrowth or outcome, if you like, of having organised to Try Walking In My Shoes, was to really see um, the advantages of that particular approach to screening a film, providing a safe, supportive space for discussing mental health issues and getting people from a range of perspectives all around uh, to share their thoughts. So you don't just have the filmmaker, you also have someone with lived experience, in this case the author of Romulus, my father, Raymond Gator the lived experience he had as a child of parents with mental illness. You also have people who've got professional expertise other people who can share their insights and I really could see the benefits the merits of this as a model of film viewing so I began to look at what other initiatives are out there. Ours was sort of you know, a one-off event, uh, but are there other ongoing sustained initiatives both in Australia and globally that are doing exactly what MedFest is doing which is bringing films to an audience that, you know, these are films people may not otherwise see they might not otherwise seek them out and giving them a a place to talk about them so, you know, in my research and it's in its very early stages, I've discovered quite a few um, exciting initiatives one uh, that exists in Canada called Frames of Mind which is a monthly mental health series that's run at their equivalent of ACME, the Pacific Cinematheque and it's curated by a psychiatrist from the University of British Columbia. His name is Dr Harry Karlinski, and he was just out in Melbourne in December last year for the other film festival. And the other film festival much like Caraf, is a festival that brings attention to issues of social justice particularly for people with a disability. And he was talking about his philosophy, which is about showing films that are of high calibre, high-quality films, both features and documentaries, and then curating or moderating the discussion afterwards with mental health professionals, people who've had a lived experience of the condition that's portrayed on screen, and involving the audience in that.
2: Now, intuitively, that's a great thing for decreasing in stigma and addressing misconceptions about mental illness. It's a great forum for education. Intuitively, it seems like a terrific thing to do. Mm. It seems a very hard area to actually research, though. Mm. Are you simply researching into what's available out there in terms of the things that people have done before and are currently promoting, or is there, is there an outcome to, to research that you can do in this area to yeah. demonstrate perhaps that it does do what we intuitively think it should.
0: Yes, it's interesting you should mention that because in the report, the Mental Health Commission's report, really emphasised evidence-based strategies. And uh, one of the other initiatives I've been looking at is Art with Impact, a California-based organisation that takes short films into schools, colleges and universities to reduce mental health stigma. And one of the first things they do is they conduct naturally exit surveys with their you know population that they've basically introduced the film to. So in terms of their arguments for funding from their particular government bodies, they actually have a whole raft of surveys that they can say, this has helped contribute to reducing stigma. But they're immediate short-term surveys. Obviously, we need to look at longer-term Impacts, um, And I'm at the very early stages of this research and my background is essentially in portrayals on screen, not in terms of, you know, quantitative analysis. <laughs> so this is the kind of research that does require an interdisciplinary team and uh, I'm hoping to uh, really embark on that in the next year or so. But I'm just very excited that something like MedFest is happening because there have been initiatives similar to MedFest here in Melbourne. Uh, people might remember I've been on the program before to talk about a film called Breaking the Chains, which was directed by Aminia Colucci. Now, she's the founder of the Cultural and Global Mental Health Film Initiative, which ran for two years at Melbourne Uni, much along the same lines as MedFest, um, the idea that you have a screening and you have discussions afterwards. At the moment, that's in hiatus because is now in London, but I know that there's a group of people who are looking to revive that particular film initiative because they can see its value.
2: Now, here's a thought for you. Mm I mean, (laughs) we're all very enthusiastic about this idea about having a screening and then a discussion, but by, by its very nature, it's somewhat limiting. You can only get so many people inside a lecture theatre to participate Mm -hmm. in that sort of discussion wouldn't it be great if for example SBS were to screen a particular film Mm. at a certain time and then link that afterwards to a webinar where it could be discussed online. That way it would sort of open up the same concept to potentially an audience of many thousands Mm. as opposed to uh, a a discreet event and it would be dirt cheap to run and it would be a really good forum for testing the strength of those ideas and the participation of the community.
0: I've actually been thinking about that in relation to last year's ABC's Mental As Initiative. You might remember that, that we could programming that the ABC ran, I was really interested in looking at the social media coverage that that received and people did actually resort to using Twitter as a way of actually discussing or commenting upon what they saw. Of course there's limitations with Twitter, obviously space limitations so I think what you'd really need is to actually have a curated, moderated online discussion forum and I am a little bit concerned about social media in the sense that people can hide behind a cloak of anonymity and may not be quite as respectful in their discussions as they would be if they're actually in a theatre with people with a lived experience so, um, as I said, I'm in the early stages of my research just beginning to feel what are the pros and cons of different approaches to developing this model of mental health film culture. I do think we need to explore the ways we can do it through TV and through online uh, social forms. I'm just not sure we've got it quite there yet.
2: And I gather, you know, if, if only to illustrate a point from the discussion we were having earlier, that there's absolutely no funding to do uh, this sort of research that's no. uh, based on improving community mental health literacy and stimulating resilience and discussion and stigmatisation.
0: Well let's just say I have been exploring many research funding options of late and uh, I cannot share any of them of you, any of those with you yet because they're all uh, outcomes pending but I do hope someone out there can see the social value in the research that
1: I'm interested in doing so um, Della, I'm right. open. I think Dr SK's bought his checkbook, I think you're right. <laughs> so, so look we're going to wind up that fascinating discussion. Now can I ask you guys, would you be able to put links to both these festivals we talked about on our Facebook page? Oh absolutely. Sometime today or this weekend, thank you very much. Yep. We're going to come back today we've just had more stuff to talk about than we've got time to fit it in it's just amazing so we're just going to come back and we're going to hear a fascinating little bit on, on a film about erotomania from sk just to finish up our our film discussion part of the show
2: three triple what is erotomania it's, it's it's it doesn't appear in any of the, the dsm uh, diagnostic bibles or anything but uh, erotomania otherwise known as de clarembos syndrome after the french psychiatrist who first described it and i've always wanted a syndrome named after me i'd, I'd love to come across something new I think a... A few, you're
1: not going to like any of them yeah
2: yeah okay <laughs> but de clarembos uh, described the case of uh, a woman who developed delusions of a particular type uh and these delusions were romantic delusions and specifically the patient uh had developed the belief that somebody uh who who she didn't know personally but uh, was in the news was a public personage she developed the delusion that she was in love with this person and not only was she in love with him but he was in love with her and uh Erotomanic delusions, they they come to clinical attention not infrequently in psychiatry. I've had a number of inpatients over the years who have fixated on somebody who's usually a public personage or a person of more exalted social status to what they are who have developed this abnormal belief and have based their behaviors towards this person on that belief so it's essentially resulted in stalking type Mm -hmm. behaviors Mm -hmm. and when uh, love goes unrequited violence is often the the outcome you know uh, anger and frustration that uh, somebody can't respond to your entreaties of love comes to the fore
1: so sk okay, these are the guys that break into the queen's bedroom and sandra bullock's house and you know these these are people who develop these long-range attachments and follow up on them as a as a stalking problem
2: Is well that... i don't know about the irish fellow who broke into the queen's bedroom she's mm-hmm. arguably a strange uh, item for an erotomanic fixation sandra bullock perhaps arguably not all uh, sort of stalking behavior uh, stems from erotomania in fact probably the the vast majority of it comes from relationship break and an aggrieved partner in an established relationship. But a small proportion of celebrity stalker cases uh, are based on an erotic fixation. And I guess uh, probably the best known of those would have been Hinkley, the guy who shot... uh, ronald reagan in the 1980s who had an erota, an erotic fixation on the actress jodie foster i mean i don't know any details about that case but the uh, the romantic fixation <coughs> on the actress has been well publicized and it may well have been an erotomanic fixation so i wanted to talk today about a french film that i saw only last night i think it came out in 2006 and the english uh, name of the film is he loves me he loves me not And it starred uh, Audrey Tattoo, who's the girl who played the lead in Amelie. That's probably her best-known role. And she plays uh, an art student. She studies fine art. She gets grants for her paintings and things. And she happens to live next door to a cardiologist who's happily married uh, with his first child on the way. And this young girl develops an erotic fixation on her cardiologist. And the way the film is done, is fascinating because it's a film of two parts the first half of the film basically tells the story from her perspective so she's talking to her friends about this terrific relationship she has with a cardiologist who's frustrated in his marriage and is going to leave his wife for me uh you know, so we can pursue our life together. And uh, we see her sending him a rose at his place of work and sort of he accepts that and smiles, thinking it's from his wife as it happens. She sends him presents. Her actions towards him are, are misinterpreted. They, they only briefly meet once, though all the while she's been living next door to him as a, as a neighbour, minding the usual neighbour's home. She sort of inveigled herself in a situation where she can be close to him and ultimately uh the erotomanic delusions take on an element of threat uh the the girl uh by Audrey Tattoo, perceives the wife and her pregnancy as a threat so she contrives to run her down on a moped and causes a a miscarriage through doing so Uh, the cardiologist who's the subject of these erotomanic fixations she keeps getting messages and love letters and uh, things scrawled on his car windscreen he gets a large painting of himself through the post so his poor wife is thinking that he's having an affair and the poor guy's completely clueless In the meantime, he's trying to work out who this person could be who's romantically stalking him and he eventually exercises his frustrations on one of his female patients who we see in the film has been inappropriately flirtatious towards him throughout a number of needless consultations but he he loses it and actually assaults this other woman who was the innocent party. He gets arrested and charged. It all gets out of hand. Then the film switches... And you go right back to the start and it's all re-experienced from the cardiologist's perspective. So instead of the, uh, the viewer seeing events through the eye of the erotically fixated girl, we see the same events as viewed from the perspective of the stalked cardiologist. Mm-hmm. And it really... Uh, was a powerful demonstration of the impact that erotomanic fixations can have not only on one life but on two lives and the broader social circle of the person uh, upon whom uh, an erotic fixation has been made. So really quite a good example of that.
0: I'm really curious about the switch in perspective you've described in the film. You know, One of my areas of interest is empathy and the ways in which films can develop our empathy for a protagonist and we share their hopes and desires and dreams. So at what point does the audience start to distance themselves from the audio tattoo character do we empathize with her at any point or
2: you do empathize with her at some point particularly in the early parts mm. of the film where she's confiding to one of her own friends about this the terrible situation that the cardiologist's in he loves me but he wants to do the right thing by his mm. wife but he's, he's going to leave her her perspective is that he keeps sending her back cues that he wants this relationship and wants her to continue but he's not in a position to disclose his love for her you know because he's an esteemed person who's in the public eye he can't disclose his love for me until he's left the wife we start to lose empathy for her i think when she uh, borrows her friend's moped and comes back obviously having had an accident on this bike and then shortly thereafter we 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 the audience here that uh, the cardiologist's wife has been involved in a road accident and has miscarried we start to get the sense that something is going wrong there the girl herself you know she's a sweet innocent girl Mm -hmm. she's got another bloke who's a a a medical student who's clearly infatuated with Mm -hmm. her and wants to do the right thing by her the
0: actress who played amelie i mean everyone's supposed to love audrey tattoo she's a
2: very lovable (laughs) character but there's clearly a dark side and i think it's only after uh the cardiologist is arrested and that act in itself forces his wife who would previously left him because she thought he was having an affair with somebody... Uh, to, to reconcile and come back on the scene, that a whole delusion unwinds. And then, literally, at that point in the film, you see a, a very fast rewinding of the film, you know, over about uh, 15 seconds, right back to the start. And then we start to see events play out from the cardiologist's perspective. And as soon as that uh, the, uh, cinematic device has occurred, you know that, uh, you know, something is, is wrong at that point and that what we've seen thus far is, is, is not real.
1: Wow, that sounds fantastic. He loves me, he loves me not. Is that it? That's it. No, okay, I'm going to get that on my my Netflix list or wherever I can find it. <laughs> look, we're going to have to finish up now. We've had so much talk about it today. It's been fabulous having you, uh, Fincina. Thank you so much Pleasure. for coming in. And good luck with all the, all the festivals and all the work that you're doing with the MedFest uh, concept. It's brilliant. And if you could put those links up, I'm sure a lot of people are going to come along and look at that stuff. Thank you very much, SK. Thank you, Kent, as always, for doing the work so brilliantly on our panel. And you've been listening to Triple R's Radiotherapy, We'll be back here next week, and stay tuned now for the brilliant Einstein GoGo Doctors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.